0: Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Louis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Louis and I are speaking with Louis Koski, Chief Operating Officer of Metric, one of the nation's leading seed-to-sale software companies. Metric is America's leading solution for cannabis and hemp governance. Its software, technology, and support teams track cannabis products from seed to sale, ensuring a closed legal business ecosystem. Metric's solutions ensure a secure supply chain, transparency, and public health, providing a safe marketplace for everyone. Lewis has a super interesting background coming from Colorado, where he was that state's director of marijuana enforcement. It'd be fair to say that he knows where the industry's skeletons are. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now onto our conversation with Lewis Koski from Metric.
1: Lewis, welcome to the Green Rush and great spelling. You're the first person I know in this industry who spells Lewis the right way, which is L-E-W-I-S.
2: I was going to say the same thing to you, Lewis.
1: It, it's, uh, it's nice to run into a, a, a brethren namesake. Um, you're the chief operating officer of a pretty amazing company called Metric. Can you take a moment, explain what Metric is, what the problems are that you guys solve, and ultimately, as the Chief Operating Officer, what do you
2: do all day? Okay. Well, so, so Metric is uh, the leading solution for cannabis uh, and hemp governments. Uh, our software is, is based uh, – uh, well, our, our software, our, our RFID technology – and all of the support teams that that live uh, in, around the software and the technology, uh, we track cannabis products from speed to sale, uh, ensuring that uh, every regulated industry that we're in uh, has a closed legal, uh, legal ecosystem. Uh, so Metric Solutions ensures the authenticity of the product through the RFID technology creates a secure, uh, secure Supply chain, uh, and and we think that it adds to uh, a credible uh, and safe regulated marketplace. And and we're we're probably serving 13 states right now, along with uh, the District of Columbia. And there's uh, well over 15,000 businesses uh, that utilize Metric uh, on a daily basis, and and that number is continuing to to surge every day.
3: Can we talk a little bit about your background in the cannabis space, um, you know, pre-metric. You were uh, the former director of enforcement um, in Colorado where you oversaw the transition from medical to adult use. I have to imagine um, you have, one, a lot of really amazing stories. Um, But what are some of the lessons you learned in managing that transition?
2: Well, uh, I'll I'll answer the first part of the question first and then just give you a little bit more of of my background. Uh, In 2010, uh, I was working for Colorado's uh, uh, Gaming Control Commission uh, as a uh, a senior investigator and supervisory investigator with with that agency. And uh, uh, at at that time, uh, early in 2010, Uh, colorado's legislature legislature decided that it was going to have uh our department the department of revenue which had the gaming division in it they're going to have uh us start regulating uh the uh, businesses that had been uh, um popping up in denver and some of the other um, metropolitan areas in fact they estimated about 1100 companies were operating um in an unregulated fashion around Colorado so they passed some regulations back in 2010 Um, I'm not sure if it was a a meeting that I missed or if I volunteered it's been so long ago but I ended up transitioning to the new division there within the Department of Revenue uh, to help set up their uh, licensing investigation section to get new applications in and then also uh, to help set up their their field enforcement unit I ended up being part of that division uh, through Of the beginning days of licensing medical businesses, um, uh, uh, all the way through two and a half years or more of implementation of the adult use market. At the time uh, the adult use sales began in in January of 2014, I was the director of the division uh, uh, by that time and largely responsible for uh, helping to design. Uh, The regulations that would be promulgated uh, that covered everything from uh, uh, licensing and and labeling to testing of the product to production controls, um, uh, implementing systems that would monitor for uh, compliance and enforcement. Um, Those were all things that we did during that transitional period.
1: Lewis, you you must have looked at a bunch of other industries for your inspiration to pull this amalgam of different re- rules and regulations. What were those inter- industries? I mean, you mentioned gaming. Um, so pun intended, I bet you took a bunch from that, but was it alcohol? Was it pharma? I mean, where did you pull the, where did you pull these rules from?
0: Well, uh,
2: if you recall, uh, amendment 64, which was the constitutional amendment in Colorado, they said regulate it like alcohol. Um, Within weeks of that amendment passing and 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 and, uh, and getting together uh, robust stakeholder groups in the state of Colorado, we realized pretty quickly uh, that uh, it was it, it wasn't a lot like regulating alcohol. That's not to say we didn't use regulations from alcohol, but there was a lot um, of uh, of things that just didn't transfer across as cleanly as I think everybody thought it would. I distinctly remember back at about the same period um, uh, I was having a conversation uh, with my boss and we were talking about uh, all of the rules and regulations and and how um, uh, uh, daunting this was going to be especially with our names in the front of the book uh, in the state (laughs) of Colorado uh, with all the regulations And, and at the time I didn't realize it until he had mentioned it to me and, and, and for all of my professional life, anytime my name was going to be put on something, um, it, it was important for me for it to be something that was of high caliber, very professional, uh, and very well thought out. And um, I, I, I will tell you that was probably the last, uh, the night before that was the last good night of sleep I had uh, for about five years. But one of, the way we, one of the ways we started. It's your
1: fault. It's all your fault.
2: It's, it's I would suggest that there's some responsibility borne by, by me and some of the decisions that, that we made back in those days, for sure. So I will take some of the blame. Uh, but I'm also happy to take some of the credit, because when you're filling in all the blank pages that were that were legalization, we did have to borrow, just like you, you suggested. We borrowed a lot from uh, the gaming industry when it came to approving licensees and vetting applicants for suitability, um, we also used a lot of the, the surveillance uh, regulations and standards that came out of gaming uh, to help establish some of those regulations in legalization. Um, we did use some uh, from alcohol, uh, but what we found is the best way to really find best practices in this was to pull together a real diverse group of stakeholders. Uh, to the table, to have them lend their expertise, not just from other regulated industry, but what are some really good business practices um, that we might want to incorporate, and, and how can we borrow from from those, along with some bits and pieces from other regulatory frameworks to, to start piecing this all together?
3: Lewis, now that Colorado is uh, firmly you know, underway, they've got a pretty thriving market, there's definitely hiccups, obviously, um, but... If you look at states like Massachusetts and Maine, why do you think they have struggled so mightily when it, when it feels like Colorado really um, did a lot of the heavy lifting for them? Well,
2: uh, first of all, I would say that uh, Maine and Massachusetts are probably not struggling nearly as much as, as, as everyone thinks. Uh, and I also think that people uh, tend to uh, uh, forget that the first uh, 18 months of licensing medical businesses in Colorado uh, was very, uh, very challenging. In fact, we had budget shortfalls. Um, we had uh, literally hundreds of businesses operating for a year. Uh, without uh, the first set of regulations. And so uh, even though I would say that the transition from medical to adult use in Colorado uh, went very smoothly, um, it it also happened um, uh, after there were a number of really big challenges, uh, uh, outright um, failures of which uh, I would take responsibility for some of the decisions that that I made in terms of licensing and things like that. I could have made some better decisions and, and had things move along which way
1: in terms of 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 licensing people who are, are rejecting people and you're like eh, i'm thinking back I, I should have given them a license or ooh, i should never have given that guy a license
2: no i wouldn't say it fell into that category it was more of the category of uh um uh, uh the so we talked earlier about how we borrowed a lot of uh, of the regulations on uh, background investigations and, and suitability requirements and due diligence from casino gambling that uh-huh. works great in a jurisdiction that has uh less than 100 licensees we started out with a thousand so the scope of that investigation was just too big and we ended up uh, uh tailoring down the scope of that investigation to meet the the size in uh, the needs of that industry. And, and and initially, I don't think we hit that mark as well as we could have.
1: Can I, I want to ask a question about the, the background checks. Uh, and we'll get to metric. I promise you we'll get to metric. But this is really fascinating because you are at the core of you know one of the first two adult use licensed regimes that have been Looked at and picked apart by all of the other adult use states, you know, and while I joked it, it's your fault. It faults the wrong word. I think everybody owes you a, a debt of gratitude uh, in this industry because were it not for you and that your department, you know, there would not be a, a state by state licensed adult use market. So, you know, you can, we'll give you a chance to crow. And, and, and if you want to do any mea culpa is that too, but one of the questions I have is, you know, you're describing this structure of background investigations into applicants. Is, is there more investigation done in terms of looking at a cannabis applicant than, say, somebody who wants to open up just a general pharmacy or even a liquor store? And if so, why?
2: Well, I would say now, uh, though the the liquor store uh and the uh marijuana licensees are probably similar in scope and i would say that they're of moderate complexity uh, mm-hmm. i think what tends to make uh the uh liquor comparison in cannabis uh less practical is there aren't too many publicly traded liquor stores, right? And I think what we're
1: seeing... <laughs> is,
3: I've never thought of it like that before.
1: But there weren't... But but when you guys opened up the... the in 2014, um, there weren't really publicly traded cannabis companies. There were a small handful. I mean, that really didn't start to accelerate until 16, 17, and 18. Were you anticipating and this? they needed or, money. Well, they needed money, but... But, but, Lewis, when you're writing these regs, were you anticipating the public cannabis markets?
2: So, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we were absolutely anticipating that the, the market would ultimately consolidate um, and that um, people who were participating in the cannabis marketplace that weren't that were not able to uh, um, live up to a comprehensively regulated framework. Um, we're going to likely get purchased by businesses that could, um, and 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 so uh, there were. From, I'll just put it this way: from my first week on the job in July of 2010, um, we had conversations about publicly traded companies. In fact, there were companies that that whether they were traded on the pink sheets or or came from a shell company, th- th- there was conversation about how people would try and get um, enough business going in Colorado that they might look at at becoming a publicly traded company. And at the time, you're right, those types of uh, business entities were prohibited uh, because there's also a residency requirement. And, and, and what we've seen is that residency requirement is really kind of trailed off um, and is a lot less uh, common than what uh, it originally was back in those really uh, real early days. Um, And so we see we see some of the bigger markets like California, now Colorado and and uh, and and so on and so forth across the country, publicly traded companies and and various other uh, structures allow for a number of uh, investment vehicles that just weren't there um, in the early days.
3: Louis, you split your time really between the government and the the industry side, Um, you know. you know and as i'm actually moving to to the vaping crisis if if that's okay um you know it, it it's not making the same headlines as it did today um as it as it did last fall um do do you think the industry handled it the right way or is it some are there things there that the industry in general could have done better
2: well i think the real wake up call for the industry with the vaping crisis is that the credibility of that regulated framework um, is uh, is always going to be a target for uh, things like the vaping crisis that happened, and 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 even moreover, uh, you could essentially have a handful of really bad actors within the vaping industry altogether that aren't even participating like they should in the regulated marketplace um, who are giving the regulated marketplace a really bad name. And if you did follow this story in the press, you know that there was a lot of confusion um, and a lot of ambiguity about where the, the problem uh, really existed. And, you know, and, and, and what we learned from that is, is something that we were already aware of and we, we were reminded of how important it is in the cannabis regulated framework, that that the that the product is tracked so closely from the time it's a, a little baby plant all the way to the <laughs> time it's harvested, uh, to the time it's transported to manufacturers and ultimately gets to the stores. And since it's tracked so 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 closely, and, and, and you know we've tracked you know over well over a billion different data points. Since 2014 in our in our system, and we're able to actually track uh, a product that could be causing a public health problem with the push of a button. We're able to track it back to all of the hundreds and hundreds of plants that might have been used in the production of that particular product. So put that into perspective of the vaping crisis. The vaping crisis. um, uh, The biggest challenge there was is we we knew that the vaping products were really causing some harm. It took a long time for health authorities uh, to be able to determine what the problem was. So they were having to put these big, large, kind of broad brushstrokes, bans on product, and they really didn't even have a way of being able to know whether those bans were actually um, going into effect by by people that were were selling the product. Well, in the regulated framework, you could. In fact...
1: But a a ban... But does a ban make sense? I mean, you know, the, the the entire cannabis market is a conversion play. We're taking the illicit, unregulated, untaxed market and converting it into a regulated, taxed market. But there's already illicit market vapes on the market. If you ban vaping, aren't we just pushing people back to the unregulated market? which is doesn't have metric and the seed to sale tracking that you guys provide. It doesn't have regulatory oversight to ensure, you know, the ability to recall by lot number. I I mean, you know, what Massachusetts did, which was ban all vaping products. It didn't stop people from vaping. It just stopped them from vaping, regulated, licensed, taxed product. I mean, who got it right? What state, I, I looked at Illinois and they said, I don't know what the fuck to do, so I'm not really going to do anything, which might have been the best response to, by any state.
2: Who, who do you think got it right? Well, um, uh, so you, may, you make a lot of good points there. I don't know that there's a real easy answer for whether a ban uh, works or not, but let's unpackage it a little bit. And I'll start with Massachusetts. Um in Massachusetts within 48 hours of Governor Baker's uh, vaping ban declaration, you guys might not be aware of this, but Massachusetts licensees used our system uh, to identify and quarantine and report all at the same time the vaping products that they had in their facilities. So once all that product was identified, the regulator also has visibility into those disclosures They're able to use that data um, to test the products and identify which products are causing harm and which ones aren't, and remove the dangerous products uh, from uh, the market. We think that that's the absolute ideal situation where the the regulator can identify the universe of product, hold it in the stream of commerce, and identify which product is, is causing harm potentially and which ones are not. And, and so that, that's what I was kind of talking to you about earlier where this was a bit of a wake up call for the industry. On one hand, they're going, we're so well regulated, we can identify the product. The ones who are not are the ones that are causing the problem. The, the, the good news, about, so so that's the best case scenario. The good news about a, a ban in a situation where you don't have metric tracking all the product is that it does serve the purpose of of trying to stop product in the stream of commerce until you can identify the problem but it doesn't support the regulators need for data to be able to quickly identify the problem quickly identify uh, the bad product and take it out while still allowing all the other product that's safe to move forward in stream commerce and so we're we're able to do that in in Massachusetts and so even though um, uh, um, uh, a ban in of, of itself might serve the purpose of starting to help Um, It really harms those good actors in the marketplace um, who have to put their product on hold uh, while uh, health authorities work with almost nothing uh, to, to try and solve the issue. I
1: mean, is this ultimately a problem because there is no federal oversight? You know, if there was a federal infrastructure like there is for recalling Tylenol. If there's a bad lot, or or lettuce, or, track, or <laughs> lettuce, exactly. I mean, is this is, was this not the moment that the industry should have gone down to Washington and say, "Hey, schmucks, we need you." Right. This isn't even about banking; it's about consumer protection. But they didn't do this. So, is this just a missed opportunity by the industry to to you know turn shit into shinola? <laughs>
2: Well, you know, I don't I don't know that, that it's a, as much of a missed opportunity as as it's still an opportunity, right? I, I think as this is still continuing to unfold and, and, and as it still um, you know tends to be, you know, get some 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 play in the media, it's certainly a, a topic that's on the front of mind for a lot of folks. We're talking about it today, right? So I think the opportunity is still there. The question might be um, where do you want to start, uh, and, and I would argue that the unregulated part of the vaping industry um, uh, that that probably bore the most uh, um, responsibility in the health uh, public health issues that were created, um, and and because and, and because of that, you know, we we might be able to to glean from the, the, the details of the vaping crisis that more regulation might be helpful. But again, we we, we tend to think of it as more regulation is only helpful um, if, it's subs, if it's supported by a really strong set of data that allows the regulators to see what happens into the su- supply chain so they're better able to control a problem like this when it happens. And so well. I think that could be addressable at the state and the federal level to say, hey, hi, at the federal level, we're importing vaping products from outside of the country. We have no idea um, what the source of the the product was. There's no regulation on that, um, and there's no way to know what kind of uh, health and safety standards were employed during the production of that product. We need to start making sure that we know those details um, before the product gets released uh, uh, um, to the wholesalers and ultimately to the customer.
3: I mean, it sounds like what you guys do is you give um, states, the you you empower them with actionable data. So, you know, so without this type of information, you know, a state like Massachusetts could never know, you know, what products are tainted um, and, and, you know, what things are out there. So I kind of want to stay on this topic a little bit, but I want to broaden it out a little bit. Two. Um, so there's 34 states, 34, 33, 33 have a regulated cannabis program in place and, um, you know, more coming. What states do you feel like have the best regulatory structure in place that meets the needs of the cannabis industry as well as the, as well as its consumers? Well, without, without, without naming states, I, I would say that... Oh, no, that, name <laughs> names. Or your come on. We're asking you to name your favorites. <laughs> yes, who's your favorite let child? Me
2: start without, let me at least start without naming uh, naming names. I, I think there's some characteristics of a really strong regulated framework um, uh, that that we've seen. And, and they, these, these, these characteristics have been employed differently, um, uh, uh, but, but the results seem to be pretty consistent. So I I think when you have, uh, number one, when you have really strong leadership coming from the executive branch of the state, um, that tends to to trickle down to the executive branch agencies and there tends to be a lot of cooperation and uh, a priority that's placed on on trying to get legalization right. Um, To name a couple of states that I think have done that really well. Colorado did that really well. Governor Hickenlooper put together Uh, a uh, a task force within weeks of of Amendment 64 passing Um, and that kind of set the model that people uh, have followed in terms of getting the right stakeholders to the table. Um, I also think Massachusetts has done a really good job in, in putting together the commission um, I really like the commission because it kind of incorporates some of the spirit of Governor Governor Hickenlooper's task force and that it has a, a, a number of different viewpoints. That, that-
1: Yeah, but, but Massachusetts has moved unbelievably slowly, right? Like there's a hundred stores maybe in Massachusetts open. They've had four years to get this going. So the regulatory structure may be nice, but if you live in Massachusetts, it's, it's kind of sucked.
2: <laughs> well, well, I, I will tell you that uh, um, uh, sometimes the the number of the of licensees in the jurisdiction uh, isn't uh, necessarily the the best indicator of of uh, how quickly they've they've moved, right? I I uh, I uh, I would say um, you know we had um, you know close to fifteen hundred licenses or so in the medical space in Colorado in two thousand fourteen. Um, do you know how many licenses we had um, in the first 60 days of legalization? Probably about 20. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and and you guys look at and and by the way, I appreciate it because uh, we did do a pretty good job there in Colorado. Um, we still see that as kind of like the model jurisdiction. And so I I, I don't know that license numbers are, are always the best way to 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 evaluate whether or not things are moving along well. I don't know, um, but I would say. Well- Lewis, I, would say I in terms of leadership, uh, um, having the Cannabis Control Commission there and using a diverse group of stakeholders uh, is, is really important. I, I agree with you. And look, we I, like
1: Shaleen title is great. And what what ultimately what they have done from a regulatory structure is fantastic. But, you know, four years, you guys you just said you got fifteen hundred licenses done in the first year. It's four years. It's a long time. And that delay has been a huge, had had a huge impact on the the public companies, right? Because they all anticipated Massachusetts being materially impactful to their earnings, you know, in, in year, in 17 or in 18. And, you know, we're in 20. And, and most probably these, you know, the state isn't going to have nearly the same impact that Illinois is going to have. And that's, you know this year it just it just converted this year so it's kind of hard to say that the regulatory structure in massachusetts has worked because it hasn't and i don't mean to i'm not picking on you
2: but no no i i don't live in massachusetts uh, i live in florida um i just i did, i just tend to uh i tend to think that uh, you know hey look i got i got experience uh not just from colorado uh but during my consulting days we worked for a, a number of uh, of jurisdictions uh, and and uh, one thing that I think is important to to note is I don't know that there is one structure, one regulatory structure uh, that is the best. In fact, I would argue that there's probably a number of regulatory structures that work. Um, it really what what really what really matters though is that you have really strong leadership um, at the state level, um, and I think there's a a number of states that that fall into into that category. Um, uh, you got to get the diverse group of stakeholders to the table, and you have to have efficient tools to be able to to monitor licensees for compliance. Uh, because what we found is, is, is and we, we have a, a support line at, at Metric uh, that fields a number of different uh, support calls from industry uh, on a daily basis. And one thing that we're learning from the industry that's really encouraging is that they really have a strong will to, to comply with the regulations. And uh, um, I would, I would argue that nobody um, has rolled out uh, a, a really uh, strong well-established regulatory framework in the first 12 months. You know, this takes time. Uh, this is very difficult work, you know, and having sat in the, the seat of the regulator. Um, of course, there's a special place in my heart for them uh, okay. because of, of, the challenges that they take and, and, and all of, uh, look, uh, Colorado probably took 15 years off my life, but I'm really proud of the work that we've done there. Uh, and I'm really proud of some of the work that we've seen some of the other uh, state agencies that even though they can um, adopt some of the regulations and, and some of the best practices that other states um, have brought on, there's new public policy issues that are creating challenges, whether that's um, home delivery, on-site care. Let's not forget how uh, big of an issue, um, rightfully so, that it's been here of late to make sure that um, that there's inclusion and, and equity um, uh, built into the markets from the get-go. And so, um, uh, all of those things have the potential of of adding to the time that it takes to fully implement. Uh, but it doesn't. But but the first 12 months is probably not the best indicator of uh, of uh, of. Uh, uh, whether or not a uh, regulatory framework is going to get off the ground effectively.
3: What are some of the dumbest, silliest, stupidest uh, regulations you've that have crossed your desk? And here you don't even need to name states. You can just be like. You know, like I like I think the whole you know a lot of the not in my backyard stuff gets to be a little silly. Um, I live in California, so um, you know I think the whole Beverly Hills thing is uh, you know a little bit ridiculous. But my um, town, Short Hills, <laughs> just <laughs> yes. nimby
1: GTI it drives me nuts.
3: Well,
2: I uh, so uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll avoid the state, uh, but uh, um, I, I think one of the the funniest. Uh, for me, and I don't know, if funniest is the best term, but one of the most memorable uh, was uh, uh, when a group during edibles regulation uh, wanted uh, uh, edible products to be uh, um, have a smell like rotten eggs incorporated into the edibles, uh, so that you knew the edibles kind, of like, kind of like natural gas. Um, uh, it smells like rotten eggs, and And, uh, um, you know, regulators look to be able to regulate really consistently. So even if you were to add a color to an edible um, or a smell, um, those are really hard things to make repeatable because you might say green, um, uh, but is it a bright green or a dark green? Or you might say it needs to smell like uh, alcohol or it needs to smell like rotten eggs. Um, those things are really difficult to be able to consistently regulate, and so we, you know, kind of looking back on that, there's no way to be able to to track that type of thing for compliance, even in the in the most robust of seed to sale systems. Um, so that one definitely stood out for me.
1: How, how about like the individual wrapping of edibles? Like if you have like, I don't know, chocolate covered espresso beans, and each one is ten milligrams or one one Dose, you know, some states make you wrap each bean individually, and creates a tremendous amount of waste because it's all done with single use plastic.
2: Yeah, I, and I and uh, uh, you know we addressed a lot of that in regulations uh, in an area I'm really familiar with there in Colorado, where um, we allowed um, businesses to to package. Well, uh, first of all, we said um, edibles, uh, adult use edibles had to be ten milligrams um uh and uh you had to have each serving separated so we gave the industry and the industry worked really closely with us to give them the tools that they need to be able to find the right balance between um protecting public health and safety and i don't know if you guys recall or not but when uh when colorado first launched there's a couple of really tragic incidents both of which um, uh, uh, were really heavily tied to overconsumption of edibles and having a, an adverse reaction for the uh, the person who took the edible. So we were really concerned that those edible products were an altogether different product than say a joint was. Um, and so we really wanted to find that right balance. And again, I, I've talked about this a lot. If getting the right people to the table um, is really important, um, and then also, too, is being able to trace those products back uh, to the origins of the, the product is really critical um, for being able to identify product that might be harming others. Um, and so, uh, so labeling certainly plays a role in that, um, but so does the uh, seed to sale tracking that, that starts early in the plant life cycle and, and goes all the way through to the, the point of sale includes all those uh, manufacturing touch points.
1: Metric is a a, a, at its at its core a a software as a service company, Um, and it's really hard to do enterprise level software as a service for global customers. But you have now you know dozen plus customers that are state governments. Shit breaks all the time. You know, version you're you're not on version one. You're on version. 20.2.x beta, whatever. How do you guys communicate to your stakeholders when you have to fix something because a state has changed the regulation and you now, it has to percolate out through your software. How do you explain this other than saying
2: shit breaks? Well, uh, so generally speaking, uh, in all 14 jurisdictions we operate, the policy is still uh, very dynamic. And our our system is tightly uh, tied to the, the public policy uh, that's evolving over time. And as a result, there's oftentimes uh, uh, needs that arise both from legislative processes and from rulemaking processes uh, that necessitates the need for us to do some additional development into the system. Um, that process for us starts very early uh, with uh, the, the regulator or, or the customer or gov- the, our government customers really starting to understand what those, those business requirements are going to need to be for um, those particular policy changes. So home deliveries. A good example of that. Of, uh, of that um, onsite consumption. Another really good example of, of additional development we've done since since the early days. So legislation and rulemaking changes. Um, we have to we have to make those changes um, uh, within the system. Uh, so what we do is we we make sure that as that that new uh, development is making its way through the the processes uh, that we're prepared both. Um, uh, with our our support team uh, but also our our systematic communication tools which uh, are available right in metric um, and industry bulletins that we're putting out detailed descriptions of uh, what the new uh, 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 development is and what it's going to look like um, and how you use it and who you call if you need help and um, and I, I will say you know you know one of the things uh, there are uh, handfuls of things that I am very, very proud of with METRIC. Uh, um, one of them is uh, our support and training team. Our support and training team is designed to uh, help promote proficient use of the system. It's not designed to hurry up and get people off of the phone. Uh, and so our, our support team is, is uh, empowered to identify problems uh, or challenges or needs of the the regulated community uh, and uh, um, uh, driving uh, um, solutions to those those problems. So when we have a production release that involves some new development in the system, um, our support team is is always at the ready to be able to help with uh, new training. Um, They're uh, there to, to answer questions And, and, you know, on a side note, we've also noticed that our support team becomes somewhat of a reporting mechanism uh, for jurisdictions as they become more and more uh, um, uh, mature. So all all that is to say is is, is, is communication starts early, Um, there's an iterative process to make sure that we have the right um, uh, uh, development going into the system, and then there's a robust communication plan uh, that precedes uh, the release into production.
3: You know as Lewis and I were talking about um, you coming on the podcast um, earlier we were saying how you guys have really risen to um, to become a, a brand in and of itself like the the Kleenex of cannabis tech if you will you're welcome you can have that tagline I'm okay with it <laughs> um, yeah. Can you talk about brand building in this industry because it is so difficult and it is so state by state and it is so different? how How did you rise to the level of Kleenex?
0: <laughs> well, I,
2: I think first is you probably don't aspire to that. I, <laughs> I, I really think, I, I really think that uh, a lot of metrics success was in the the laser beam focus it had. Uh, to make the case for um, proper regulation um, and, and really supporting the, the will of the regulator uh, to monitor and enforce and, and legalization and that, and that in doing so that it would create a, a credible regulatory framework that people had some confidence in. Um, and so I, I think the fact that they've been so focused on, on that aspect of the business um, I think that, that that made some of the other decisions that come down the line um, much easier to make. So for example, um, uh, do we have uh, we have some money um, uh, that we've made this this last six months? Uh, do we wanna use that to challenge an RFP like our, our competitors do? Um, or do we wanna reinvest that back into the company? And I think the decision's always been Let's keep reinvesting that back into the company. Let's keep evolving uh, the the product. Um, Let's then incorporate from just the regulators, like I mentioned before, the will to comply uh, coming out of the industry is something I didn't anticipate at the time I was a regulator. um, And I've really learned um, over the last 10 years of being in this policy space, Uh, that that the industry really does have a strong will and aggregate to comply. That doesn't mean there's not bad actors, but I would say uh, all in all, they recognize the value of the the credible regulated framework. And I think we were just in the right place at the right time where um, we focused really hard on helping make government successful, um, recognize that for that to happen, you also have to have willing participants uh, in the regulatory framework. And we ended up kind of being a bridge um uh um in a in a a centralized reporting system that otherwise um usually is is uh um uh, you usually have a more of an adversarial relationship between the regulated uh community and the regulator and i think in a lot of ways we're able to to to, um uh, avoid that at least have been able to avoid that um and so i think just that real late Here's our product. Here's what we're all about. Um, we haven't branched off and done a lot of other new product lines. We haven't branched off and, and uh, tried to create all new revenue streams. We tried to get really good at, at what we're focused on and perfect it over time. And then as soon as we perfect it, we realize it's not perfect. And we just keep trying to build on it from there.
1: You mentioned uh, competing against your competitors and, and reinvesting cash you know, one of your competitors went public this year. We, we, we used to represent um, MJ Freeway, Acurna. Um You guys are not a public company. What are your capital markets aspirations if you if you can talk about them? Or are you intending to stay private for the foreseeable future?
2: no i i don't necessarily know what the future holds in terms of of how this this company is structured say three to five years down the road Um, what we do know is is that um, in a lot of ways we're we're positioned really well uh, to be able to uh, expand into new states uh, as uh, more and more permissive cannabis policy um, is approved. I think there could be as many as 19 new states this year doing some form of, of either medical program and or adult use program. Um, so it might be one of the busiest legislative sessions of all time if that were to hold true. Um, so, we, so we see just such a tremendous opportunity there. And so we, we, we feel really strongly that we have a very uh, good system uh, and that it'll continue to be uh, attractive to new state agencies and, and even other countries. Uh, so our, our primary focus is is, uh, is being able to provide the system to a to a broader uh, group of of uh, industry stakeholders as that that continues to to go. Um, I I think you know we kind of casually, kind of jokingly mentioned uh, a little bit earlier about about lettuce. It, it has been really fascinating to watch. Uh, the cannabis use case and, and how how comprehensively regulated everyone anticipates it to be, but how efficiently that can actually be done um, I think is 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 shown that cannabis policies actually leapfrogged other uh, more antiquated policy uh, that is still trying to strictly regulate a an industry uh, that it doesn't have, uh, the centralized data point to do so. and So maybe over time, we'll start to see uh, um, the, the cannabis use case get the attention of other regulated industries like cold chain and um, the lettuce industry and, and other types of agricultural products as a means to uh, be able to uh, uh, more effectively regulate. And again, it's not about creating a burden on the industry because I think a lot of people view Systems like Akerna and and uh, BioTrack and Metric as being a burden to the industry. Well, in our case, we really feel like we're not. Um, we're we're a support me- mechanism uh, that kind of helps bridge the the trans, uh, transparency uh, between the regulated community and the regulator. And I think that that you could really see that take off um, in the coming years. So if that's true, um, and, and that that gets some momentum. Um, all bets are off on on, on what that means uh, in, in our positioning within the capital market space.
3: Lewis, I think both my Lewis and I would agree that you've been um, one of the more humble guests we've ever had on our show, uh, and you know, and yet your your contribution, you know, really to the industry has been immeasurable. You talked about uh, some early you know failures um, in in your career and in the in, and in regulating this. Crazy freaking space. Um, we ask all of our guests, you know, talk about a failure uh, where you learned something and it helped shape your career, um, you know, and and made you better.
2: Uh, I would say, uh, I, I would say, there's probably uh, um, two areas that I would have really liked to have done better. Um, and, I, and I've kind of alluded to both of them, and that this would probably take us back to the, the 2014 uh, um, uh, kind of the time frame. Uh, and, and the first one was edibles regulation. I think um, I think uh, I could have, and, 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 and maybe even we collectively as a state, uh, could have been a little bit more responsive to and a little bit more intuitive about the the the, the differences between uh, edible products and products that 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 people were smoking, and how those impact uh, uh, consumers of those products. So I think I think that's number one. Um, what I learned though from that is is that if you can. If you can put together the right group of people into the room, even if those interests are, are competing, and you guys have to, I'm pontificating a little bit because this is the subject of my dissertation um, and my PhD program. But if you can put together um, a, a real diverse group of people um, and you put the regulator in the position of facilitating a good uh, public policy outcome where everybody's interested in the public interest, not just not just the, the, the public interest groups, um, but if everybody's interested in defining what's in the best interest of the public, you can actually come up with some really good public policy. Um, and so I think I think the failure is um, that, that we didn't recognize the problem as soon as we should. Um, the the take home message is, is that you can correct those kinds of, of failures if you can get the right people to the table to, to, to problem solve it. So I think that was one. And if you'll uh, indulge me a second, I think in Colorado, the other thing that we just didn't get in time, and I think it's really uh, still maybe even creating some real challenges for for the state now, is is we we were so fixated on public health and safety um, and getting that original round of of public policy out um, that we didn't really pay a lot of attention to uh, the 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 equity inclusion. Uh, ch- uh um uh, focus that we start that we're starting to see or have been seeing uh in a lot of the other states and as you guys know that's a central issue up in the northeast um you know i think uh, i i think that's going to be an issue that they're going to have to be able to address you know new york and new jersey and connecticut um for there to be successful legalization you know and so i think now i would i would the the, the take home and the lesson learned from that is is if you're you are one is you should have public policy that that addresses those those concerns uh, and 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 that you should try and do it as early in the the process of a stop of a state adopting the 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 public policy um so that you can get it incorporated uh, on the front end. It's exponentially harder uh, for states and local jurisdictions to try and incorporate that 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 policy. Um, once uh, the the industry is already up and running and very robust.
1: all right, last question. If you were to wake up tomorrow and open up the the Tampa Tribune or the the Florida Sun Sentinel, what's the one story you wish the media were covering about the cannabis industry that they're just sleeping on that that nobody's paying attention to?
2: Ah. Uh, I don't know that so I I mean, the one that comes to mind uh, is, is the the vaping crisis. Uh, And in particular, uh, uh, I don't think people realize the value of the data that's in a system uh, like metric. A, a, a system that is centralized where licensees or the regulated community or the businesses that are participating report into a system uh, their inventory, um, uh, when it's tested, when it's transported. I mean, they, they've all adopted this this process or these processes and kind of operationalized them into their businesses. Um, and the, the value of that data. Um, Uh, is is uh, to both the the government and to those individual businesses uh, is is what can really help to formulate a a credible, regulated framework. And so I would love to see some attention paid to that maybe in the backdrop of the, the vaping crisis. You know, we don't miss that opportunity that you were talking about earlier. Um, and we look at other ways to, to be able to, to utilize that data to better protect public health first and foremost, but also to inform public policy going forward that has the potential to, to help with economic development as the uh, potential uh, to be able to, to refine the public policy so it's not so onerous uh, on the industry. Um, uh, and it also has the ability to make the regulator much more efficient and much more effective at actually accomplishing the, 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 the public policy goals that are usually handed down from uh, constitutional amendments and, and state regulators. I'm sorry, state
1: legislatures. Lewis, thank you so much. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. I'm sorry we, we have to cut it short. I would love to continue, but I can't. Um,
2: truly, we'd love to have you back. We would love to come back. And uh, in the meantime, feel free to consider us uh, an uh, ongoing uh, resource for you all. Awesome.
3: We would love that. Thank you so much, Lewis. Great meeting you.
2: All right. Great meeting you, too. Look forward to meeting you all in person sometime.
3: Definitely.
1: Our thanks to Lewis Kosky, Chief Operating Officer at Metric. Check them out at metricmetrc.com. As always, thank you for listening. I know I've been saying this a lot recently, but honestly, the time that you give us is, is time that you will never get back and that you choose to spend it with me and Anne, our guests, Shay and Nick, is something that we don't take for granted. So truly, thank you for giving us your time, your attention um and if you want to chat with us, you can reach us on Twitter um, with the handle at the underscore greenrush or on Instagram at the Greenrush underscore podcast. Um you can drop me or Ann an email or Shay or Nick or the guests or whomever. Um the email is greenrush at kcsa.com. We're always looking for your feedback, for any guest ideas, uh questions that you want us to ask any of that stuff. And please remember to rate and review and sign up and subscribe to the podcast on Apple or on Stitcher on Spotify, wherever you're listening to us. The more you do that, the more people can find out about this show. um, So that what we won't be is the best kept secret in cannabis we will just be the best podcast in cannabis. And with that, that's one take Shay one take.